You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. Okay, so I have a new CMM on my floor. Woo! A little bit of strategery. I had a Haas VF2 2017, so six-year-old machine, fairly low hours. That got picked up last Friday at 9 a.m., while simultaneously at about 9.30 a.m. in Anaheim, which is about an hour and a half away, uh, a used Zeiss CMM was being picked up and dropped off here at the shop. It wasn't dropped off. It was carefully delivered via forklift and air ride suspension. So that's getting set up now as we speak. So he spent uh, Friday and most of last week. He, it's a guy that travels the country servicing all types of CMMs, and he's been doing it for a long time. And I know nothing about CMMs. So it, it was good. He's a lot more brand agnostic. Yeah. And he has just a better overall picture. So that was like a comfort zone for me. And then he's, keep in mind, he is out to please me. He's not here to make a sale. He's not here to represent a brand that maybe he's only been employed by the company like Zeiss for a few months and he's their technician in the area. This guy's been doing it like close to 30 years. So uh, I feel really good going with a third-party independent guy. He actually came out, he was in the area, and he went to see the CMM first and okay. gave me a report. So it's kind of like if you buy a used car, you take it to the dealership if you really want to, have it pay a couple hundred bucks for inspection and either buy it or not. So yeah, he said it's great. There's some things that he can tweak to make it more accurate. So as of today, he's about three days into it now. Okay. He has been able to verify that it's a good machine after the move because you never know what happens on the road. He's been able to fine tune stuff. There were things that he didn't see the first time around. Like there was oil in some of the lines that had pooled. Sure. And he said the old shop probably had a just dirty, unfiltered air at some point. So that was good that he replaced those lines and filters and he's getting it set up and he says, oh man, this is, I've got it to specs that you see on a new machine. So I'm like, great. And I got it for about 75% off list price if this were new. So nice. It's a 20 year old machine. That's one of the reasons that they were selling it. They just said, look, it's just our, our 20 year. I don't, I don't remember what was significant about 20 years, maybe warranty, something like that. Okay. But I wouldn't go to them for warranty anyways. And if a CMM breaks, it's going to be a significant thing. There's always parts you can get. Yeah. So overall, I'm feeling really, really good about the whole thing. So in general, how does this dovetail with your overall approach, which is buy new machines, buy reliable machines, buy machines that have good parts availability. Don't lock yourself into something off-label, off-brand, out of the norm. Because it's a new technology. I think okay. you and I had talked offline about laser engravers, where I said, yep. look, I'd love to get this domestic engraver and it's 20,000. But because it's a new technology for us, fiber lasers to be specific, yep. I'm just going to buy the piece of junk from China. And if it runs for six to nine months and we have to throw it in the dumpster, that's the cost of educating ourselves. Okay. So that's really my approach here. Hey, the CMMs are new to us. Like We have all types of custom built gauging tools. 
Yep. Which have worked great, but you know, CMM is just the way to go when you're doing higher production and the ability to scale because we hundred percent inspect every PPS base and that's a skilled art. There's a process, but you know, if we could just put a PPS base on the CMM and hit start with a proven program and it spits out a report. Great. So the fact that we just, I want to dip my foot into high-end metrology CMM's the way to go. I'm going to buy used. If it were a piece of junk, we would still use it and we would learn. And that would be our college education right there. That would be our semester of metrology. So yeah, it, it fits. But no, once we master laser engraving, once we master, yeah, metrology and some other things that we're currently learning, then we go new. Then you go all in. You know what, Andrew? It's kind of like you and I as musicians. When we first started playing, we would not have known the difference between $150 Fender and an American-made Fender. Yeah. You just don't know. It's just your skill level has to get there. So that's how it kind of fits into the, my ethos. Fair. I've heard the phrase, buy your second CNC first. That was expressed to me when I was shopping for my first VMC after I'd gotten myself a little desktop router, I'd learned to program it. That was essentially my throwaway machine. I ended up Mm. selling it to another guy who wanted basically a a light duty hobby machine. But I was trying to decide at that point between going for like a Tormach or a mini mill or something bigger and more capable. And recognizing that once I had gotten my feet wet and knew enough to start to actually use the tool effectively, that jumping to a mid-tier option was going to be something that I was going to rapidly outgrow. If I had gotten myself a Tormach 1100 at that time, instead of getting my first brother Speedio, I would have run up against the limits of that machine much, much faster. Mm. And I still have not run up against the limits of my Speedios. There are certain things that I prefer to put on an R-series machine just for cycle time reasons, but I have not exceeded the kinds of jobs that I can do with the available number of tools, with the available spindle speed, with the available rapids, with the available torque. There's still a lot of gas left in the tank on those machines for me to do all kinds of challenging and interesting things. Mm-hmm. But if I had bought myself an, a sort of an open enclosure Tormach 1100 back in the day, that machine would not be able to do a lot of the stuff even that I'm currently doing or want to do in the near future. Yeah. The other thing I'm cognizant of is this technology that I'm bringing on, does it scale? Now, a lot of guys have gone the route of going with a Bridgeport or Tormach or a Sile machine, but your next machine, your next like pro level machine, that's not fair. I would say like those machines are pro, prosumer, I suppose. You're having to relearn stuff and you're having to learn a new control. And that, to be honest, people ask me, hey, why did you buy another Haas in the horizontal package? And I go, because we know Haas and it's standardized and we know how to make good parts with average machines. The shop that I bought this CMM from, super impressive, very high-end type of work. They're mostly prototype shop, okay. and they were doing some stuff that I, I can't talk about. It, I would say I, there's no NDA in place, but it's just professional courtesy. I don't want to talk yeah. about it, but some of the tolerances and just things, it, it was unbelievable, these parts that I saw. But the owner and I were chatting and he had a mix from the very, very high-end machines. He had some beautiful DMG Moris, the monoblocks, the five axis, all the way down to very old VFs, the Haas VFs. And 
I said, if you were to do your shop over again, like what machine brand would you go with? And he says, I wouldn't change anything because every machine has its place. If we're doing production and it's this typical plus or minus five thou, yeah, it goes on a VF. It's a no brainer. If we're doing this, this one satellite component and it's definitely a five axis part, it goes on the DMG. And he said a phrase which you don't hear enough in our industry because of the Instagram effect is it doesn't matter. In most cases, 90% of the time, it doesn't matter what type of machine you have. What's more important is the operator. And you can have a very average machine and a great machinist make incredible parts. The opposite's also true. You can have a fantastic machine with a terrible machinist or operator that can't make a part to save their life. Yep. In my perspective, the technology should never get in the way. I've got a few. Well, right now we only have one more Haas machine. I'll throw them under the bus. The UMC 500, not great on accuracy. Now that we know that, there are no high accuracy parts that go on the UMC. The parts that are made there they are cosmetic features only. And when I say like cosmetic, like within the standard plus or minus five thou, that's right. And in our standard shop tolerance is plus or minus two and a half thou. So it, it was refreshing to hear a seasoned, successful machinist and business owner echo some of that. Like the machine brand isn't that significant. It's so much more about bringing up your people in the right way. Yeah. You could put me in a phenomenal performance sports car. And I'm going to get completely outdriven by a moderately competent amateur driver yeah. who drives a lot in a Dodge Neon. He's going right. to drive the wheels off me because he knows how to run a car. Well, that's a great analogy. Yep. But the thing you said about the Instagram effect, what is interesting to me about that is it is true that with a competent programmer, competent operator, even if you don't have the latest, greatest CNC machine tool, you can make great parts. However, I'm not in the business of making parts. I'm running a company. Mm-hmm. And the question of the, if I put three different parts from three different shops off three different brand machines in front of an inspector and the inspector couldn't tell the difference between the part made on an enormous Mazak, Integrex, whatever crazy thing, versus one that was done in multiple vice fixturings on a VF1 because the operator had pulled it off, that doesn't necessarily mean that the companies are both equally healthy or profitable or that those jobs are going to be repeatable. Because one of the things that I've been thinking about uh, a lot this week, we hired two new employees this week. Mm -hmm. Neither one has started yet, but we hired them both this week. One is just going to be a regular production, an assembly employee. We did a job listing. We interviewed a bunch of candidates. We've generally kept those kinds of listings open relatively long and wanted to get a bunch of potential people and conduct a bunch of interviews and then essentially offer a position to the person we like the most, but keep the next two or three people on our list and let them know, hey, we're going to keep your information here. and we'll, We'll consider you if we have an additional position of this type. So if you hear from, you, you may hear from us again, if we continue to expand in the next six or eight months, hmm. just so that we're not starting over from scratch every single time. But the second employee I hired is an experienced machinist, far more experienced than I am. He starts in a couple of weeks, but he's done a bunch of fourth and fifth axis work. He's run wire and sinker EDMs. 
He's run a variety of types of lathes and done a lot of inspection work. He, he just He's a very well-rounded machinist in an industry that does a lot of challenging parts out of difficult materials. And I got to tour this past spring the shop that he worked at, and it was really interesting. I enjoyed it very much. They had a lot of cool things. I was especially fascinated, although I had no application for it. I'm fascinated by EDM stuff. And it's one thing to go to a trade show and watch them cutting out those vanishing blocks where you slide the two parts yeah. together and you can't see the seam. And that's a cool party trick, but the reality of how do shops that do EDM work for real money, not just to make playthings for trade shows, how do shops that have EDMs use them? And one of the neatest things I saw them do, and there's no NDA here, but professional courtesy is not going to be too specific, but they had an interesting lathe part that was being run and it had some unusual internal geometry. And they were executing that by wire EDMing custom lathe inserts using standard lathe inserts. They were fixturing lathe inserts on an EDM and wiring them into essentially a custom form tool for this one odd feature on the ID of this part. And I'd never seen anybody do that. I'd never seen somebody modifying carbide lathe inserts in-house with an EDM to make their own form tool to make a custom thing. Yeah. I thought that was really neat. And that tickled me because it's like, okay, you could find some complicated way to do this, and but you just took an existing kind of standard-ish insert. Yeah, figured out how to fit the geometry you needed into it, figured out how to hold it so you had some negative angle on the face to get a functional insert out of it. And then you just wire EDM'd it and proved it out and it worked. So cool. I'm like, that, that is a brilliant piece of problem solving. That's a really clever solution. And I loved the tour. I enjoyed seeing the shop. At that time, I didn't know that that guy was going to be on the job market at this point. And I had no designs on trying to hire him. I just wanted to go see the shop he worked at. I'd met him through mutual friends. And the day that we met, it was at a school function. We talked for like an hour because we obviously just hit it off on the same wavelength. So I was like, oh, you should talk to so-and-so. He's a machinist. And I'm like, hey, I met this school function. I get to talk to another machinist. I'm into that. And so we talked for a long time. And when you have a skilled operator, that's both an enormous benefit, but it's also a huge liability because a lot of your institutional knowledge can walk out the door. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And the reality of what would happen if what would happen to my company if I weren't here anymore is although the company is more mature and has a better chance of surviving now than it would have even a year ago, if snap your fingers and I'm out of the picture, my company probably doesn't continue in a healthy way just because there's still too much institutional knowledge tied up in me that's not been externalized and systematized and handed off, too many things would just be holes in the sky. They'd just be gaps that they nobody would have the tools to fill those in. Mm -hmm. And in this particular case, him choosing to come work at our shop is due to a variety of factors, but it clearly is going to be difficult for his existing company to absorb him leaving mm -hmm. because he's so well-rounded, has done so many different things for them, that the chance that they're going to be able to find somebody else who can step into all those different shoes and wear all those different hats is very, very low. Yeah. Can, can you discuss why he wanted to make the move over? There were some shakeups going on in that company with management. So it was a cultural issue. Yeah. It was not that the company didn't have work, but that the structure of the company was changing pretty rapidly. And he was going to end up having to work in a structure that he didn't want. Got it. And so he decided, 
nope, time to look around. And because he knew what we did, he hit me up and said, hey, I'm considering looking for a new job. Would you be interested? And I was like, I am absolutely interested. And this is one of my Vistage chair, David Quick, has said this before, and I'm trying to remember where he got it from. But that company culture is like a magnet. It both attracts and repels. Hmm. It attracts people who it's in sync with, in phase with, and it actively repels people that it's not. And the stronger and more defined your company culture and the whole ethos of your shop is, the more it will be irresistibly attractive to people who will fit well there, and it will be a huge turnoff to people who will not fit there yeah. well. Yeah. And there are no shortage of stereotypes, both positive and negative, of people in the manufacturing space. And I think anybody who's grown up in a shop training under older machinists, guys who are at near or at retirement age now or were at that age 10 years ago, there are plenty of guys who will tell stories about how they learned they learned to run a lathe from some guy who didn't have a nice thing to say about anybody ever. It's like, well, mm. no matter how good that guy's lathe chops are, if he came and saw my shop and saw how we ran things, he probably wouldn't want to come work here. Yeah. Because yeah. he's not going to be able to be himself. Yeah. No, that's so true. So you answered a question that I was going to ask is how do you source potential new hires? We just went through, I think it's one of the job boards, Indeed, I think. Yep. And it was actually, I would call it a success. We had 10 applicants that fit the job description. A few didn't. And so those are the ones that I was most interested in. Like my guy's like, hey, this guy doesn't fit because he's got a degree in graphic design and he's worked over here in this place that not related. I'm like, oh, wait, bring that guy because he's got different perspectives. He's like a rookie. Obviously, he's of good moral character. Sometimes you can tell in a resume, sometimes not. And it was really interesting because, yeah, the one guy that we hired, he was the graphic designer that did not have a manufacturing background, but he says, I love learning. I want to learn how to do this. I, I know of this industry. I really like it. I just, I want to work hard. And I go, great. You cannot teach that. We can teach you machining, manufacturing. We can uh, try and help you assimilate into our company culture, but we can't teach you to be or have the desire to be a lifelong learner and want to work yeah. hard. So we'll take you. So we onboarded him on Friday. On Monday, he said, I hate to break it to you, but I got another job offer. And I, it was in a completely different industry, but they're offering him like, I think it was like six or $8 more per hour. I'm like, good, you go do that. The wonderful, happy for you. That's great. Yeah. But no, we went with another guy that was through a personal recommendation. So of the 10 candidates that we in, interviewed through Indeed, there were two that stood out. And our second place guy came through our other hiring portal, which is Word of mouth, which is what we do. We have a $300 finders fee Yep. that if anyone recommends someone, we hire them. They're there for 60 days. We give you a $300 kind of bonus on your paycheck. So when our thing is like, hey, don't just throw anyone at us. Like you're going to kind of be on the hook for recommending the guy. <laughs> like we had yeah. the, one of my guys recommended a close family member that was just, he was the first guy in the company that I walked in on a Monday morning. I went, who's that guy? <laughs> like, I knew we needed to hire. It was several tiers of, I guess, management down, I guess you could say. So I had no part of the hiring process and quite frankly, the firing process either. But the guy just didn't work out. That yeah. He was one of the reasons that we implemented the Lego test. 
Did we yep. talk about that? I can't remember. Yeah, we have. Yeah. And yep. so I was thinking, how do we do a Lego test for some of these other positions? If it's a clerical position, if it's a customer service position, that type of thing. But had you ever tried any of those job boards or posted? Yeah, we've actually, like we've used Indeed to hire a number of candidates. My preferred method for finding a new employee is virtually always uh, a personal referral from somebody who I know and trust. Yep. Because that takes a lot of the guesswork out and it also provides some counterweight to the relationship where if I hire somebody and I train them and then they flake out or leave or no call, no show or do something bad at work and have to get fired, there are costs on my end. But if there are also social and relational costs on their end, there's an incentive to not treat that flippantly. And it's not that I want to be holding other relationships over people's heads, but if I volunteer to do something for other people who know me in other contexts, like my relationships do matter. Yeah. And so I've really, our, our best and fastest hires have virtually always been referrals from people who we knew and trusted. And as soon as we could meet the person and find out that they seemed like a learner, seemed like they were going to get along with people, seemed curious about what we were doing, it was obvious. And Gary V says, hire fast, fire fast. Don't be afraid to give somebody a try. Now, it's one thing if I'm going to like hire somebody from Massachusetts and relocate them and their family here. The hire fast, fire fast approach works if you have an available labor pool that you can quickly dip into, bring somebody in and try it out. And if it doesn't work, you haven't left them stranded in the desert mm-hmm. where they've got, there's enough people in the labor market and there's enough companies and jobs in that labor market that if you're not a good fit for somebody else, you aren't the only option that they had. But Indeed has been a mix. We've spent money on Indeed ads sometimes or getting them to boost our visibility to get extra candidates. And we've had a wide range. We've had a number of very appropriate candidates. We've had oftentimes like eight or 10 in a row where you're like, what is Indeed doing? No, 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 obviously not. No. (laughs) But that has at least as the top of a funnel, if we have a job opening and we don't have an immediate referral from somebody that we know or from any of our employees, but we tell the employees, you guys have worked a whole bunch of different places. If there are people at these other places that should be here, let us know. Yep. If there are other people you've worked with who would fit well here, who would enjoy what we do, who would be a good part of this team the way we have it set up and would be an asset here, we want to know about it because probably if they're a good fit here, they're not a great fit at that other mega big company that you came from. Yeah. And they're probably less happy there than they would be here, less challenged, less fulfilled, less excited to go to work. Mm-hmm. in that environment than they would be here. And yeah. so it isn't just that maybe we could pay them more or maybe we have a better schedule for their life, but maybe they will actually enjoy working here in a way that they couldn't at the other place. Yeah, that's a huge advantage, culturally speaking. Yeah, come to think of it, like I remember there was, well, we have three guys that we employ that was through that personal connection. Like my guy, John, he's, I talked about him often. Like he was my first rock star, high output, high pay guy, to be frank. But, you know, he, I said, man, John, we got to hire someone, you know, at your last place, can we reach out there? And he said, in all my years, there's only one guy 
that I would want to work with, and it's Armando. And guess what? We have Armando now. He's nice. And then another guy, Ron, Ron, who, oh, his company was moving out of state. I said, dude, who is not going with you? Who's your, your guy that I should hire? He said, Juan, got Juan still with us, Jerry. And then Juan referred Jerry, who I've known for 20, almost 25 years at this point, but kind of a family friend. But I said, Jerry, who have you worked with? Who's a great, oh, Alex, he's the best. Guess what? Alex is our mill lead at this point. That's and awesome. so, yeah, it does work where you're pre-screening pr- plus they all know each other and they like each other. And yeah, it's, it's a just, little bit like the game Minesweeper. Like you, you unlock huh, adjacent yeah. things. Every, every time you bring in a new person, you're not just bringing in them. You're bringing in their network. Their network their of relationships. relationships, friendships, and knowledge. That's right. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. No, like, do you listen to Dave Ramsey? I don't. Okay. So one of the things he's got, I think he, I'm familiar. I've, read, I've read a couple of his books, but sure. Yeah. So he employs about a thousand people and he talks about that, that they, they don't really do job postings that they may, I don't know if they do, but they always say that they always want to hire based on personal relationships. And I think their bonus is like a thousand bucks or something. I've heard it on the podcast a, a, a time or two, but yeah, I just wonder. So we're in a suburb, large suburb. I mean, our city here is a hundred and probably a hundred 30, 40,000, something like that. And we're surrounded by, well, LA County, there's probably a million people on the other side of a mountain range and then another quarter million in the next two neighboring cities, more park and thousand oaks. And we have one, two, three, four guys that commute in and their commutes at least 20 minutes, 30 minutes, something like that. So we're pulling from far, but you know, you being more rural, do you find that that has been a difficult part in hiring? It certainly is a challenge. So our shop is technically located in the town of Spencer, Indiana. Spencer has a population of less than 5,000 people. Spencer's pretty small. The next big town that we're near is Bloomington, which is about probably 85, 90,000. Roughly half of that is IU. So there's a big university there. Mm. Otherwise, Bloomington would not be nearly that size. And Bloomington is not a very well-rounded industrial manufacturing town. It has a couple of big medical manufacturing companies. So there's like, there's a couple of 800-pound gorillas, not a whole lot else, and then a bunch of small companies. And so definitely there are other places like, my family is from Rochester, New York. I know entire companies that started there that grew to 200 or more employees were basically all they did was as various divisions of Kodak got shut down and sliced open and were bleeding out people, they were just taking the pick of the litter of all the best folks that were getting let go as Kodak was restructuring and could morph that into a whole other company. Yeah. Not just a startup, but just a company. Ta-da, a company with 150 people in it. Mm-hmm. And we definitely don't have that. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to scale super rapidly. This is one of the reasons why I'm glad I'm in physical manufacturing and not in software because everyone talks about how cool software growth can be. Like, oh, we're adding users. We're adding 100,000 users a month, like some insane number. Well, the rate at which you have to scale or die when your assets are digital, demand can so quickly ramp exponentially And if you don't have the server infrastructure and the people to manage all of it, you can just run out of sky to fly in, just be gone. Yeah. 
And for what we're doing, we don't have the same risk. There's, a, there's obviously a cap on how fast we can grow. But I would rather grow safely at a controlled rate than go, okay, we're going to fire off this rocket that we're all strapped to, and maybe we'll make it into orbit, or maybe we'll blow up into a million pieces at 45,000 feet. Either one could happen. Yeah. The word that came to mind is pivot, which is, well, certainly it's gained popularity in Silicon Valley and in the software space. But yeah, it's you throw a bunch of code at the internet and then just see if people adopt it. And if not, you pivot. And that's really hard to do in manufacturing. Very easy, yeah. relatively easy to do in software. Yeah, you're going to have to shut things down, sell off your assets, maybe restructure. But you read about pivots often in the software industry. Certainly, if there's any industry that I follow outside of manufacturing or machining to be specific, it is a software industry because it's like imagine first or even like a 10th century cobbler or some type of tailor or some hands-on blacksmith type thing watching the advancements in the 20th century, starting in the industrial revolution, that type of thing. You would learn so much. That's, I feel, what the advantage is to watching what happens in Silicon Valley. You see so much money going in so many different directions with so many different ideas and top talent. And then the the problems that they face, how can I take little bits and pieces of that, distill it down to manufacturing and make maybe one or two very high impact, high quality decisions per year by yeah. watching others fail spectacularly in Silicon Valley? Yeah, I'm conflicted about the whole software industry. I have a lot of admiration. I mean, I'm basically, I'm driving a car that somebody else built on roads that somebody else paved. When it comes to manufacturing, I'm not inventing new machine tools. I'm writing specific programs, new mini applications to make particular kinds of things, but I'm not really inventing that many new technologies. I'm not changing how people interact with their world in the way that a really groundbreaking software or software-hardware combo can. The smartphone changed the way that people interact with the world in a fundamental way. VR has the potential to change that in a similar scale. But because the products and the ideas are themselves conceptual, digital, there has to be physical infrastructure on the back end to support it. You can't run Twitter without servers. Mm, but sure. the ability to move things forward and rewind them back, like if there's bugs in your code and it's a public app, you can push out a patch yeah. for all your users. You don't have to go recall every device that your software was loaded onto. I mean, hopefully, if your software bricked every device that it was loaded onto, you don't have a company anymore. You're right. going to be, you just, you're gone. You're yeah. a smoking crater. But there's some sense of the impermanence and the fungibility of the product making it easier to try things because you have the ability to pull your hand back out of the fire before your arm is gone. Mm -hmm. Where we are like biting onto something and we have to hang onto it for a while to get it into the market. Mm -hmm. And then it's out there. It's a physical artifact. We can't take it back. Or we can't make it come back. Well, we can't deploy a patch. <laughs> we certainly can't do that. We can recall things and have them shipped back. Mm -hmm. But if for any reason we don't know who has the thing or we don't know where it is, we have no way to ever 
yeah. definitively recover an asset once we that, put it that's out That's a great market. point. That's a really good point. Yeah. So the original Rotovice, I don't know numbers right now how many we sold, but the next version of the Rotovice had the ability to hold pallets on all four sides instead of yes. just vice versa. And so people would call and say, hey, can I hold this? No, you're a, a Gen 1, but we have a Rotovice program. Send it back to us. We will upgrade it and we would disassemble it and machine the features into it and send it back to them. I think we charged something very, very small, like a hundred, hundred fifty dollars something like that. And most people just immediately took us up on it and they were blown away. They're like, wow, that's great service. I'm glad it's now forward compatible, backwards compatible as well. But yeah, a hundred, hundred fifty bucks. It's that's a no brainer. I know we lost money on that, that whole practice. Oh, all we asked was that they pay for ground shipping both ways. I think that was part of the deal. And we would turn it around within 48 or 72 hours, something like that. That's a rarity in manufacturing. That's like if you take a car, okay, this stock exhaust is not great. So we're going to go ahead and go to a muffler shop and they're going to upgrade it. But you know, we're essentially the manufacturer and the muffler shop. It was a good exercise for us to go through. And quite frankly, I wouldn't say it was a mistake. Yeah. It was a mistake. It was just like, I just couldn't figure out at the time how to make pallets held correctly in the Rotovice. But we're going to leave a lot of extra material on this end because there's some feature here that's going to happen. We'll come back to it. And the only physical thing that was difficult was that the bodies of the Rotovice are hardened. And so we had to do hard milling. So that was a skill and a process and a tooling that had to come together for us to do that. But Yep. Now moving forward, everything's beautiful, works great, no complaints. Price is also higher because we always discount early products because we just go, no, we want to make a working relationship with our early adopters. I think the Rotovice back then was, it was like two grand and now it's in the mid threes. And I would say the value of the current Rotovice is multiples of the original Rotovice, but it was a great learning lesson that today I'm going, no, no, no. That's why we haven't had a new product launch in years because I've been sitting on designs because I don't want to go through that again. It's better to just kind of get it right the first time, especially in manufacturing. We had a discussion with our CS team this past week because we were talking to a customer and the customer basically said, I bought your product a year ago. You've released a new version. I want to be able to buy just the updated parts of it. And be able to re-roll my own component mix. And it, it was for a kit that we make. And it's like, no, we're not going to take apart a kit and sell you three of the 10 components out of the kit. The expectation is we iterate these products frequently. And this is, an un, this is a sub $100 item. This mm-hmm. is not a huge sum cost. But we have, anytime somebody has a warranty claim or something breaks or fails, we always update them with the newest version. And if there's any other ancillary hardware or other things that for any reason wouldn't be back compatible with the version that they have, we replace every component that they would need to make sure that their entire system is compatible with the newest version of whatever it is. Hmm. But it isn't the expectation that like, when you buy physical products from a company, you're getting like a subscription to the latest greatest, where anytime they roll out a minor improvement, you should just get that automatically. And it's like, well, no, the the product that you bought from us six months ago was the best version of that product that we made at the time. Mm-hmm. We stand behind it, we'll back it, it's warranted, but we're not going to go back and 
consistently replace and re-replace every version of everything we've ever put out there. Yeah. Because that's not the deal. We're not charging for that. Mm-hmm. If you want a forever holster where anytime you want, you can just mail it in and exchange it for some other thing we make. I mean, I suppose we could do a forever holster program, but it'd be expensive. Let's say, and, uh, and it would give you a bad value for most of the customers who bought it. Okay. Yeah. Opinion. Okay. That was my point. Yeah. So let's just, let me throw out a round number. Holster is a hundred dollars. Yep. What do you think if you did do a forever holster program, what would it be? 250, 500? It'd probably be five or 600 because most of the customers who would want to stay on top of that industry for that long are going to be people who carry a lot, train and shoot a lot, and they wear out their gear faster. Like real runners go through a lot of running shoes. Yeah, sure. And if you bought a, so this was, there was a, a fascinating article. And I think we may have discussed this before, but for a while, I think in the 70s or 80s, American Airlines, I believe, sold a lifetime first class pass. Yeah. For a quarter was million? Like, was this something? Yeah, it was like a that? quarter million dollars. Yeah. And later they did an add on where you could buy a second seat to go with you for like 150K. And then later they found they had to claw that back and they accused all the people who had them of various forms of, minor breach of contract and then yanked it from everybody. And there were a number of lawsuits. And generally, the, the airline won those lawsuits, which was kind of a shame. Wow. But the idea that if you're buying a forever asset, it'll, re, it'll be refreshed and re-upped as many times as you want for the, for the rest of your lifetime. That can make sense as a gimmick. But actually, you're trying to balance on the knife's edge there. If the person never uses it enough to have met the one-to-one cost of buying all those things individually, they've had the option to, but you're actually taking more of their money. They're not getting as good a value. And if they cross over that threshold and now they're saving money because they would have bought 20 holsters at retail over their lifetime as a customer, but they only had to buy this one and now they've gotten 30 holsters out of it, you're losing money. Yeah. And it really puts, obviously it did with the airlines, it put them in a weird adversarial relationship with the customers who had given them the most money up front. Because once you've crossed that threshold, it's only downside for the airline. Mm-hmm. And they had realized it was going to be that way. And so they had stopped selling it, but they had these legacy customers who had that thing and they couldn't plausibly just cancel it. They had to find some excuse. Yeah. And putting our customers in a position where their clear and conscious benefit is our immediate loss and vice versa is not a position I want to put my customers in. I don't want to put my company in it. I don't want to put us head to head and say, this is a zero sum game for every free thing you get. I'm taking it on the chin. I don't don't like the way that that works. Mm -hmm. And for most customers it would result in me taking more of their money. It's it just on the surface, for me, it feels gimmicky. I'm trying to think if they're, oh, oh, here's a great example. I subscribe to this workplace poster service. Yeah. $5 a month. Okay, so we're talking 60 bucks a year. And I think they send us all the latest posters. Gosh, I don't think we've gotten updated posters for a while. It's probably going to the old address. I never thought about <laughs> that. Ryan, can you make a note about that? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, $5 worth every month. Yeah, man. I have literally not thought about that probably since we moved. 
But I know that like, does a new set of posters cost $60? No. But what is the cost of a whatever employment entity <laughs> launchers? If someone were to walk in and go up oh, your posters, there's a $500 fine. There's a thousand dollar fine. It's just, there's in kind of like an intrinsic value there, whether I have it's the insurance. physical product. What is it? It's insurance. It, yeah. It, yeah. There it is. It's $60 labor insurance each year. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But uh, our, our products, I don't know. So Haas sells Haas tooling. They're doing this thing called winner circle. Essentially it's Amazon prime for Haas tooling. And th- that's literally how a Haas employee described it to me. It's, it, it's just prime for our tooling. But that's kind of like commodity-based. You know, you're going to be buying inserts and end mills, things like that. Yeah. And I don't quite remember all the, I'm not endorsing it. I don't remember the benefits. Maybe free second-day shipping or something. It's literally pretty close to prime. One idea we've played around with is not so much like a lifetime holster, but the latest, greatest club, which is essentially okay. you pay an annual subscription fee. Uh-huh. And you get in exchange for that fee, a certain increased amount of store credit. So maybe like you buy a hundred dollar subscription, you get $150 in store credit, but it can't roll over year to year. Okay. But you have to pay for it ahead of time. And then whenever we release something new, you either get it at a discounted price or you have a slightly up adjusted ratio of credit because you, you had that membership. There's a variety of ways to do it, but essentially it it allows people who know that they're going to want to continue to spend money with you over the subsequent years to get a little better value for their money in exchange for essentially pre-funding those purchases six months, eight months, a year in advance. Mm-hmm. And it isn't like you can only use this for yourself. You could absolutely like order a holster for your brother-in-law and have it shipped to his address. It's not like we would have tight restrictions on it, but the idea that you will have pre-bought in at a discount to as soon as we release a new thing, you can just snap it up. Mm-hmm. And maybe you even get pre-release dibs on it. Maybe you get access to products in exclusive colorways or other minor value ads that don't require us to release entirely different product families, but give you something interesting, different, that's a little bit of a bonus. Yeah, And we haven't actively pursued that, but we've tossed around the idea. And this is the same way people who people buy iPhones two different ways cell phones generally, smartphones, two different ways. Some people buy and they pay out the entire contract and then the phone's paid off and they just keep the phone going and going and going and going and going for as long as possible till their kid drops it, cracks the screen. It's already paid for. They turn it in. They get a new one. They re-up their 18-month or 24-month contract and they're back at it again. There are other people who consistently eat the pre-change. You haven't fulfilled your contract. You want to upgrade to the latest phone. And there's a essentially a penalty charge for upgrading before your contract term was out. And I know people who do that every single time. Pay the penalty? Who yeah, who pay huh. the difference, pay the okay. delta to leap forward to the newest version as soon as it's available. Okay. And I don't do that, but I generally don't run phones till they're absolutely dead. If I have a two-year contract, I'll use that phone and take good care of it till the contract's up. And I'm eligible for an upgrade. And then as soon as I'm eligible for an upgrade, I'll upgrade. Mm. Because for me, the phone is one of the single most useful tools I have. I manage my driving. I manage finances. I manage email, text. It's the main source of memories and photos and videos and all kinds of other things. I use it all the time. Mm -hmm. 
And the benefit of having the best version of it with new capabilities is actually tangible. I remember when I made the jump from an iPhone that couldn't do AirDrop to one that could do AirDrop, getting files from my phone to my laptop was suddenly infinitely easier. Oh, wow. I don't have to attach this in an email to myself. Yeah. (laughs) No, I I think it it depends on the commodity you're talking about. A few thoughts. I still like my phone and I got it in February of 21. So it's well over two, call it two and a half years old. I don't want another phone. And I opt to buy my phones outright, unlocked, go to any carrier. I don't want to be locked down into a contract because I did that one time and I kept the phone for like, let's say like four years. And they said, oh no, you pay this every month. Well, it was like the, what, 50 bucks a month for service and the phone. Well, at a period of time, that 50 bucks, if you keep paying it, you are not, you're then losing. My earlier thought was, off that coming off the heels of the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I, I may have said it past, I don't know if it was to you, but that it was habit number seven, but it's actually habit number four, seek win-win outcomes versus like a win-lose. Yeah. And that's like, if you go to a subscription base, uh, especially for smaller companies like you and I, I know that like either the customer loses and we win or we lose and the customer wins. And most people would say, well, great, you want the customer to win. Yeah, but like you, you play that out, you scale that, that that's not a great business model. Yeah. So yeah, I'm going to well, shelve this idea. That's the American Airlines thing, which is they set up a win-lose. For the customer to win, the airline had to lose. For the airline to win, the customer had to lose. Yes. But for a small business, I think there is actually kind of a middle road there. And it depends on how you define win and lose. Because one of the things that kills small businesses is cash flow. And one of the things that you hedge against with some kind of subscription model is you hedge against variability in cash flow. Mm-hmm. Sure. And for a small business, for example, if John Grimsmo sold a limited number of musical chairs every year, where every year, January 1, he sells 25 seats for a knife. Mm-hmm. No idea what knife it is, no guarantee of what's coming or not coming later that year, but somebody could pre-buy, this is completely theoretical, could pre-buy a spot at or near the front of the line to get a cool thing that they want when it comes available. And if they don't use it, it goes away on December 31. They're buying an option. Anytime Mm. somebody buys an option to jump on something exclusive, the option has real value to the people who value the thing they want to get with it. Sure. And if they decide not to use it, I didn't cheat them. I didn't screw them. I didn't con them. They, They had bought a spot in the front of the line, and they decided they didn't want to pull the trigger on what they saw throughout the year, didn't quite suit their fancy, so they didn't spend it. They didn't buy the thing. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of interesting ways to do that, and essentially having some pre-cash flow in those subscription fees, and knowing that probably most of it is going to convert into actual units you ship later in the year, and take some of that industry variability, seasonal variability, other things, and even it out. Even, hey, if you get crushed every year at Black Friday, you have huge sales volume, but you can't staff up and train up to double your production for the month of October and November and then scale back down easily in what we do. It would be too much, too short a ramp up period to actually bring in temps to boost to turbocharge our production capacity just to get over the Black Friday hill. Mm -hmm. But theoretically, if a lot of those purchases were pre-funded with cash that came in in January, February, March, 
we could be hiring people part-time to give us that little extra production boost from here to October or November to make sure when the time comes, we've got everything we need to make it over that hump. Yeah. Not a fully formed thought. No, but you know what I was thinking? Like, What problem is being solved? And you just laid out the problem of lumpy cash flow. Yeah. And so that- Lumpy demand, lumpy cash flow, and lumpy labor markets. Yeah. It's funny you brought up Grimsmo because I know his story, and he shared this publicly. I'm sure it'd be fine, but they did a pre-sale, probably 2014, 15, 16, something like that. And he would say, I'll never do that again. What's that? No, pre-sales are deadly. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the difference between pre-selling a product that you are then on the hook to deliver. Because when you pre-sell a product, you get all your cash up front and it starts evaporating. Yeah. And it evaporates and it evaporates and it evaporates and it evaporates, but your obligation doesn't change until you Uh, ship. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But- if somebody's paying a smaller amount of money, they're not pre-buying the full thing. They're buying the option to buy the thing. Okay. So they put their deposit on a not a, a vehicle. Oh, a, a cyber truck. Yeah, yeah. Like you yeah. pay a certain amount of money to be in line to yeah. get a cyber truck. Mm-hmm. And when push comes to shove, a lot of folks who paid a small, a middling amount of money to stay in line when they go, hey, you're at the front of the line. Here's the balance, Cybertruck today, yes, no. A lot of those folks are going to say no, and their hold my spot in line money goes away. Tesla keeps it. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of those people, it's a really good value Mm -hmm. because they wanted to have the option to make the choice in the future. They're pre-buying the option to make the choice in the future. Yeah, yeah. And that actually does have real value. Buying Mm -hmm. options is a real economic thing. It's not just like, oh, you're buying an idea or you're buying just hype. Although in some cases, yeah. If you buy the option to get in line and then the Cybertruck never actually makes it to market and you bought a dead-end line for a closed theater, Mm -hmm. you never get a chance to actually see the show, Mm -hmm. then yeah, then it's a scam. Yeah. You know what's funny? YouTube, I can't believe it did this, but it just served me. It suggested a 14-year-old video of a lady that would have been when the iPhone 1 came out. What is that? About 2007. And she pulled up to the front of the line in her car the day of, and there was a guy that had been there for who knows how many, three days camping out or something. She paid him for a spot? And like $1,000 or something. And her plan, she had a wad of cash. She was going to buy like 50 iPhones and flip them on eBay. And the joke was on her because it's only one iPhone per customer. And so she said, well, I'll take one. And let's just say the price was 600 bucks. The guy walked away. Well, he went to the back. I don't remember the whole details, but essentially she did exactly what you're talking about. She purchased his option. She essentially paid him $1,000 to hold her spot in line. But that's the thing, like $1,000 is not the same amount of money for three different people. Right. For some people, $1,000 is life-changing money right now. For yeah. other people, $1,000 is a rounding error. <laughs> right. And the reality that the world works on such different time and money scales for people, some people waiting in line for those three days would have been worth way, way, way more Oh yeah, than $1,000 to them. And for yeah. others- Way, way, way less. And it's not that a subscription model or a join the club model or an Amazon Prime model or any of those things are necessarily right or wrong. 
they do suit some segment of the market in a tangible way because people are clearly using them, buying yeah. them, choosing them. Yeah. And as long as it's transparent and upfront, the, the money that changes hands actually accomplishes what it was promised to accomplish, then I don't have any problem with it. Mm-hmm. But do I want to ride that ride? Do I want to get in the rodeo and offer that as an option to my company and deal with the potential consequences? No, we don't do back orders and we don't do pre-sales. I have seen so many companies get absolutely savaged in oh. the aftermath of doing a pre-sale or taking back orders. And we've gotten bitten by it before, not to a significant degree, but we don't want the customer's money until the product is ready to ship. Yeah. Period. Do you not like the obligation, the obligation no. of filling obligation? This is, there was a movie, it's got Jeremy Irons and Kevin Spacey, Margin Call, Margin okay. Call. It's about the 2008 financial crisis. And essentially, it's a fictitious company, but based in, on how that whole thing actually shook out. But this company is essentially buying up lots of mortgage bonds and then repackaging them into these complicated, one step removed, these collateralized debt obligation CDO packages. And the problem is that it takes them weeks or months to properly layer in all the different kinds of securities and bonds that they've purchased to build the complete CDO, which means all those individual discrete risks have to stay on their books. They have to hold the hot potato the entire time till they package it and then sell it to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And really what pre-orders, pre-sales and backorders are accepting a supply chain, a labor market, all kinds of hot potatoes and saying, I'm going to hold your money. I'm responsible for it. I may spend it in the meantime and still owe it back to you. Who knows what could happen in the world in the meantime, and my obligation does not change. Yeah, right. It has all this risk to it. And for us, as long as your company has the cash to continue to operate and you don't need that money, first of all, if you're taking pre-order money because you can't make the product without the pre-order money, mm -hmm. You're not properly capitalized to make the product. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's yeah. one thing to take an investor and say, hey, we're not paying you anything for the next 12 months. Yeah. You're you know, giving I us money to run with, and we're going to build this product and develop it and take it, to, excuse me, take it to market. But individual customers, when they pay, they want the product now, yeah. as soon as possible. Yeah. The closest thing that I've come to is I ran a Kickstarter campaign in 2013, and it was a never again experience yeah. because of that obligation. And I was on track. Like I, I planned it out. I had the designs done. Quite frankly, I had the money to do it, but I just went the Kickstarter route. And what sidetracked me, I was late on deliveries, is because you, you crowdsource money. But what I didn't realize, you need to guard yourself against crowdsourcing other people's ideas. And had I done it again, I'd say, no, I'm not going to add that. No, you can't get custom laser engraving. No, we can't do this and that. Now, some of the ideas were good, they're really yep. good. And it was more of like, ooh, I'm going to do that. But by default, the answer should have been no. It was a good life lesson because I hated the feeling of obligation. It's almost like I was in a different form of debt, not just yeah. with a bank, but like the 200 people that pre-purchased my thing on, on Kickstarter. And yeah, getting it, paid it, up front and doing the work later always makes the work feel worse. Oh gosh, it was terrible. Part of the cycle is you do the work and then you get the payoff of receiving 
Yeah. What you earn with the work. And that's the natural order of that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's like a credit card for your business. So Margin Call, I've not seen the movie, but I know I've seen the boardroom scene on yeah. YouTube. Classic, yep. great boardroom scene, right? It's a movie worth watching. It has a bunch of generalized, fictionalized stuff in it. But that and The Big Short are a few of my favorite financial movies just to see because it feels kind of like watching aliens on a foreign planet. There's a scene where Kevin Spacey's talking to his boss and the boss, boss just says, well, it's just money. It's all made up. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean it's all made up? Th big short that, does it have Steve Carell? Yeah, yeah. Does that have a boardroom scene? Not a boardroom scene that I recall. Oh, the boardroom oh, here, here scene is in margin call. Yeah, okay, yeah, I've seen that, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know this, yes. They have, uh, it's a casual boardroom scene. <laughs> They're at a round table. Yeah, yeah there's a lot. Of, the Big Short is much more interested in spelling out the vocabulary, explaining how the structural breakdowns happened, naming actual players, like the actual banks, the actual companies in Big Short are much more, are historical, are real. Like the individual investors who are portrayed by like Christian Bale and the other main characters are all real people and their actual positions, their trades, their shorts are actual. Where margin call is more of a related to a based on a true story. Okay. Makes sense. I've got a CMM technician wanting my all attention. Right. Great to talk to you. Good I will episode. catch up with you next week, Jay. Okay. Have a great see you evening. then.